Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. Welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 24, BRCA and Prophylactic Surgery with Stephanie Saparito. Okay, first of all, we got to break down some giant vocabulary words here. We have the word BRCA and then prophylactic. BRCA mutations we talked about in episode 10, Basic Genetics, and also in episode number 20, Genetic Counseling with Zoe Siegel. But if you missed any of those episodes, here is our quick crash course on BRCA. Everybody has this BRCA gene because what normally happens in your cell life cycle is it grows and then eventually it gets old and wonky and it needs to be told, thanks for your service, see you later, time to die off now. That's where the BRCA gene comes into play. It delivers that message and says, okay, old wonky cells, you are no longer needed. So when people say that I have BRCA, and I myself am guilty of doing this, what we are really meaning to say is that we have the BRCA mutation. In other words, that gene that's supposed to deliver the message to those old cells, that gene is broken, and it's not working properly, and that message doesn't always get delivered. Well, then what happens to those old cells? Those old wonky cells don't die off like they're supposed to. They start to grow uncontrollably, destroying body tissue. That is cancer. Cancer is the uncontrollable growth of cells. There is BRCA1 and BRCA2. BRCA1 is on chromosome number 17 and BRCA2 is on chromosome number 13. If you have a mutation in either one of those genes, then you have an elevated risk for getting breast cancer because again, that message doesn't ever reach the cells that it's supposed to. Me, for example, I have the BRCA2 mutation, which translated for me having an 84% chance of getting breast cancer within my lifetime. If somebody has the BRCA mutation, then a couple of different things could happen. You can have the mutation and then you get cancer and you have to go through all the treatments. That's what happened to me. You have the mutation and then Sometimes nothing ever happens. Just because you have the mutation doesn't mean that you're going to get cancer. It just means that you're at an elevated risk. And then thirdly, you can have individuals that have the BRCA mutation and then they choose to get out ahead of it and have a prophylactic surgery. These individuals, they know what the risk is. They have perhaps witnessed people in their family going through the trials of cancer Oftentimes, some of them may have passed away and or they just know what that risk truly entails. And if they had a prophylactic surgery, then their risk of getting cancer might go from, say, 84%, dropping it down to single digits. So prophylactic surgery, again, is when somebody chooses a preventative surgery. They have a mastectomy done prior to ever getting cancer but they have it done because of their increased risk. Not everybody is a candidate for prophylactic surgery. This is something that happens, again, for the population of individuals 
who are at that super, super elevated risk of getting cancer within their lifetime. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with Stephanie Saparito. She is a BRCA sister who chose to get out ahead of the risk and undergo a prophylactic mastectomy. She found out that her cousin was positive for the BRCA mutation. Her cousin was diagnosed and died at a very young age. So Stephanie, along with a handful of her cousins, decided that they wanted to know that information was meant to empower them. So they opted to do genetic testing and come to find out she had the BRCA mutation. So Stephanie therefore chose that she would move forward and have that preventative surgery and reconstruction done at the age of 29. We have Stephanie here with us today to talk to us a little bit about what it means to have that BRCA mutation and what it's like undergoing the prophylactic treatment. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you with us. Hi, Joyce. How are you? <laughs> so, okay, so tell us about your cousin. You told me before that that's how, what kind of jump-started this whole process for you. Tell me a little bit yeah. about that. Well, my cousin Heather was diagnosed early in her mid-30s. She actually passed away at 36 years old, you know, with inflammatory breast cancer. And she kind of, <laughs> she sent me and a bunch of other cousins over Facebook a messenger Mm -hmm. uh, message explaining BRCA, her diagnosis, and kind of urging us to get tested, you know, me and a handful of other people. And, you know, ultimately, I actually was the third cousin that wound up having the prophylactic surgery after obviously getting tested and being positive for uh, the BRCA2 mutation. So you had BRCA2 as well? Yes. Yeah. Well, and BRCA2 mutation. See there, I'm always saying <laughs> mutation. It, always saying it incorrectly. We mean the mutation. Mm-hmm. So you had said before, at first when she contacted you, you didn't you didn't really want to know. I did not want to know. That was my initial ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know. You know, let nature take its course. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But then, you know, obviously, she got worse. She passed away relatively quickly. And, you know, even sitting at her funeral, her husband wound up coming and saying something during the eulogy about, hey, you know, cousins get tested. I had actually already started the process at that point. I had gone to my local uh, center for breast care in Savannah. But uh, yeah, it just, I don't know. The more I learned about it, the more I realized that I wasn't completely out of control about it, that you can do stuff about it. And knowledge really is power and not to be cheesy but that's the legit fact here that once you learn about it and you discover oh wait i'm going from an 84 percent risk down to five maybe right you know whatever couple cells might be left there it's worth it right it's worth it to just go and have the surgery and you know it's a lot of research though i'm not gonna lie i researched it for a few months so you you went from (laughs) ostrich put my head in my head in the sand where i don't want to know anything to okay well maybe i should research this and that switching to research mode was also in a way gaining Mm -hmm. control right oh yeah that's something that you can own you can do you can Mm -hmm. you can decide yes, I'm going to arm myself with information. And then once I've gathered as much data as I possibly can, then I will move forward with whatever decision is right for me. Right. So in my case, you know, I was relatively young, you know, my late 20s that, you know, I had this test done, but it was fresh after my cousin passing. And when you get that diagnosis of, 
you know, from, you know, in my case, it was through informed DNA, you know, the geneticist called me and said, yeah, you came out positive. It's like a slap in the face. Like what, you know, did I, did I just hear my death sentence? So from there, you know, obviously there's the initial meltdown. <laughs> right. And then after that, it's, all right, I got to do something about this. You know, I need to learn about it. I need to regain some kind of control because I can't have this control me. This is not dictating the rest of my life. Right. Walk us through your family tree and your pedigree. And again, pedigree is mm-hmm. basically the map of the family, who mm-hmm. married who, who had what kids. And, and, and you can trace traits and you can follow mm-hmm. genetics through exploring a family tree. So yeah. um, how common was breast cancer and or this mutation? Very common. So the reason it had gone undetected as long as it did was because it traveled through the men's side of the family. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't realize. It's not on They're that carers. sex. Yeah, they are. It's not, this mutation is not on chromosome 23. It's not on that sex chromosome. Mm-hmm. So it can be inherited from either side mm-hmm. of the family. Yeah. So in my case, it's, I inherited it through my father. My father hasn't had breast cancer or anything. He's just a carrier, but all of his siblings were carriers. You know, he has two brothers and a sister, all of which had this, you know, same genetic mutation. So my father's sister, so my aunt, she had breast cancer, but it was in her 60s. And this was pre, you know, BRCA testing and everything. So it wasn't necessarily a red flag. And then my paternal grandmother also had breast cancer in her 60s. So, you know, having breast cancer in the 60s isn't unheard of. It's not a red flag. It was whoa, you know, when we had the one cousin show up at 30 with it. Right. You know, in her 30s. So, And she had taken yeah. action and had found out, not only did she have cancer, but she had that mutation. Yeah, which, she had the testing after she was diagnosed. Which, which means that anybody who's, you know, related cousins, because that BRCA mutation came from one of her parents, mm-hmm. which means that one of her parents, their siblings could possibly have it, and then yep. their, therefore their kids. That's why cousins are at at risk for Mm -hmm. inheriting it too yeah so paternal grandmother passed it on to all four of her kids you know and then i'm her grandchild that you know obviously it passed on to me and even ancestry dna where you can send stuff in and connect with foreign cousins that are twice three times removed yeah i connected with one of them and they have it on their side of the family same mutation so that it's definitely very dominant we know of um you know, indirectly nine people that have carried this mutation in our family out of 10 that have been tested. So you said that when you first found out you had like meltdown, which is completely understandable. (laughs) I was right there with you when I found out too, right? So how did, how did emotions start to change throughout the process? Walk us through that. So they took a while to do my testing. <laughs> and uh, I, I, there was some holdup with the insurance and everything that I, I think I had submitted for the blood test, you know, with Myriad Genetics and everything in maybe April. And I didn't actually get the results till June. <laughs> there was a decent gap there. And once I got that diagnosis, you know, like I said, my cousin had just passed and it was right here in this kitchen. I had my meltdown. I, my husband came home and I was like, I got to tell you something. Yeah. <laughs> and his initial response was just take him off. And he was so supportive of it. Like, in fact, I think he knew more than me yeah. at that point. And yeah. 
I was like, well, I'm not ready for that. I'm in my 20s here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me research it. But yeah, over the next couple of months, it was, you know, I hit the web. I found support groups on Facebook. I found you know, a couple of different good websites facing our risk of cancer empowered, the force mm-hmm. website, Bright Pink. I reached out to a Bright Pink mentor at one point. It helped me. The more I learned about it, the more I learned about the options, the more in control I felt about it. Right. And then... The less scary it then becomes. Yeah, yeah. It was less scary. And from there, so June I was diagnosed. I didn't start interviewing surgeons till like September. So I spent like the whole summer researching. You were on a mission line. Oh, yeah. I've got to figure this out, gather as much data as I possibly can. And now when this all happened, you said you were, you know, late, late 20s. So you were young. Mm -hmm. You were married. No kids at the time. You were, Mm -hmm. you were just kind of thrown into this, I would say blindsided, but I guess you knew about your cousin. It was more of like still a shock. I don't think it matters. It was still a shock no matter what. It's, yeah, it wasn't necessarily a surprise per se, but it was definitely, oh, (laughs) I have to do something about this and. You know, this is real. You're talking to me. This is. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of resemble that cousin that had passed. So Mm -hmm. there was also that factor of in the back of my head of that could be my future. Yeah. So nobody likes labels, but I want to I want to throw out a few more vocabulary words because I think people have Mm -hmm. heard them and they just don't necessarily know what they mean or what they refer to. So if somebody says, oh, they're a survivor, that usually Mm -hmm. refers to somebody that has had cancer, fought through it, right. and made it to where there's no evidence of disease. Mm-hmm. And then you have people that might be going through it, then that they might be considered fighters, or sometimes people like mm-hmm. the term thriver. And then other people can be diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer, where they're, they're always going to be battling it. They may prefer the term thriver. And then you have those that get out ahead of it. The term has been coined pre-viver, mm-hmm. that they get out ahead of it. So knowing that there are all of these different terms that one can use, people still don't like labels. So no. even if that happens, that doesn't mean that somebody is no evidence of disease that they want to be called a survivor. You know, they might still be a little apprehensive of sure. that. I want to just take a moment and get, get those vocabulary words and those labels out there so people understand what they're referring to, but then also to recognize that not everybody identifies with that just because of the choices that they made or where they are in their their treatment. So how do you personally feel about that term (laughs) pre-viver? You know, I'm torn about it. I won't be, you know, so pre-viving, you know, yes, I took action. I did stuff about it, but I would never put myself on that same level of a survivor of going through cancer and, you know, the battle that they have to go through. I mean, one month after my surgery, a good friend of mine was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I mean, it was like divine intervention (laughs) that we even met each other quickly before that. And so I just, yes, I use the term pre-viver for lack of any other word. (laughs) There's no other term for, you know, what I did, but I don't necessarily love it either. Right. I don't know if that really answers that. But. No, I no, I, I understand because a lot of people, they um, even if they're, you know, saying no evidence of disease, they've been through it and they're technically in the survivor category, they still might not like that term because they're mm-hmm. still, well, you know, I got to follow up. Mm-hmm. I get it. People people don't don't like labels. No. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and nothing wrong with that. But I did want to at least address that yeah. vocabulary. 
How does the surgery then affect your risk? You said that you were up in high 80% chance of getting mm-hmm. breast cancer in your lifetime and the surgery dropped it down to... Roughly five. Yeah. yeah and just low single digits. I don't think Dr. gave me an exact number, right. but it's low. Letting those statistics sink in for people that are listening. 84% chance that you will get cancer in your lifetime. And then you do this prophylactic surgery, meaning that you have it done to prevent the risk of cancer because of that that 84% chance. And that action drops it significantly. 84 to five. That is huge. Enormous. That is huge. That's, That's exactly why you do it because... I mean, I'm not a betting person, but 84% chance is as good as 100 in my, like, I'm sorry, that's a virtual certainty that I'm getting this. Well, and I think it depends too on what's at risk. You know what I mean? Like when you're dealing with those probabilities, like what are the stakes that I'm dealing with here? Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately your life. It's, It's our lives on the line. It's not... Am I going to get an A in this class if I study or don't study? Right. What are the chances? I mean, it's not something trivial. Trivial. It's it's our life. Yep. Okay. So this surgery is it's essentially the same thing that many people in the in the public recognize that Angelina Jolie had done, right? And people who don't get these st- statistics, who don't understand what this BRCA mutation is all about, and then what you can do to be empowered with it, they may sometimes say offhanded and hurtful remarks. It's coming out of a place of really not knowing not, their Yeah, facts. they don't know. Did you personally hear any of those? I didn't, but that's because my family's filled with scientists. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, a lot of people are in the medical field in my family. And as long as you kind of explain it in such a way, you know, 84% chance of getting breast cancer, it's more than one in two. It's it's all about the explanation and how you present it. I didn't experience it, but I have heard of plenty of people that did. So that that kind of goes into my next question here. What would you like those that are saying these offhanded, they don't mean to be hurtful, but they are hurtful remarks. What would you like those individuals that are saying them to understand? Just the statistics, put yourself in their shoes. If someone told you you have an 84% chance of having breast cancer, and you know that you can do something about it, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it comes from an air, um, a place of them just not knowing. Right. So educate yourself, arm yeah. yourself with, with the facts. Knowledge. And do, yeah, knowledge. Do mm-hmm. the research. What would you like to say to other patients that may be experiencing, like maybe they're the recipients of such harsh remarks? Like you were you were very blessed and fortunate that yeah. your, your, your family and your friends, they got it. But what about those who are in a similar situation as you, but they're surrounded by people that don't get it and are saying these harsh things? What do you, what do you want them to know? That they should seek out support groups. I have to say, even even though I may have been, you know, in a family that of people that have this BRCA mutation, I still felt like I was on an island. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was so alone. No one knows what BRCA is. It, but go on, you know, something like the BRCA Sisterhood on Facebook and join this group. And oh, suddenly there is a lot of people that know exactly what you're talking right. about. So and you you're ha- not alone. You have to be your own advocate and arm yourself with knowledge and seek out your own support. It's right. you're in control. Don't think you're not. <laughs> right. 
So let's talk about the surgery. You had a bilateral mastectomy done. Yep. That was the preventative surgery to reduce the risk. What do you remember most about surgery? Ooh, what do I remember about that? The fact that I'd never done it before and I was more scared of the anesthesia than actually yeah. amputating a body part. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. right? So um, climbing on that table is a little intimidating. Yeah, but they give you the, yeah. um, the stuff in the IV that makes you loopy. Yeah, loopy. <laughs> so you're not so bad with that. No, it was more just the in, the apprehension in the months leading up to the surgery that was, I remember like, dis, I didn't have my surgery in February and I'd say like December was where I was like legit scared about it. It's almost like you have to go through a grieving period for your body, what will be your lost body parts. Right. In my case, I kind of got the grieving done before the surgery right. because I had so much time, but a lot of people go through it after. Yeah. I think you're you're spot on with the, that word grieving period yeah. because it's not only the loss of part of you, part of part, part of, of your, your body. Womanhood. It is part of your womanhood, but then also like as a whole who you are and what you know about yourself both physically and then also now emotionally because this is mm-hmm. a big thing. This is a big deal that you you dealing with and who you are all together after going through this is going to be different than who you were yeah. before and learning to come to terms and accept that new you mm-hmm. requires that process. Yeah, it definitely does. You know, I think the surgery itself it went very smoothly. I had my breast surgeon actually talk to my plastic surgeon. They coordinated a plan together. There was good preparation. The two of them actually putting together their plan and going to his office first to mark me with the marker and then she cuts me. And yeah, it was well coordinated. Do you have any regrets at all? None. None? What would you say is the biggest challenge of the whole journey? Probably just wrapping your mind around it. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot of learning. It's you have to really be your own advocate. And, you know, it's easy to just sit back and say, I'm not going to do anything. But at least for my choice, I felt like I needed to do something. Right. You wanted to, to be in control. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I get control. That's my word. I like <laughs> control, to be in control. Sure. What would you say is the biggest life lesson that you've had out of this experience? Ignorance is not bliss. Yeah, well, that's good. I like <laughs> you know, that. Knowledge is power. And they're not saying that just, you know, to be some cheesy line. It's I like that. Ignorance is not bliss. No, it's not. You're being dumb. Right. <laughs> so arm yourself with knowledge. It's your best friend. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that your plastic surgeon and your breast surgeon, that they worked together. So mm-hmm. you had reconstruction done. Was that with expanders to implants? Yes. And then I think if I remember correctly, that after all was said and done, and for those for those that haven't heard these episodes before, oftentimes the plastic surgeon will go in there the day of the surgeon will remove the tissue, the plastic surgeon will insert the expanders. Mm-hmm. So you up. They monitor you, they let you heal, you have drains the whole nine yards. Not fun, but we can make it through it. And then they they fill you up. It's yes. part of the reconstruction. And then once all is said and done, then you have a second surgery where they remove the, the expanders and they replace them for implants. Then when all is said and done, some people choose, and if I remember correctly, I think you did, to do nipple tattoos, right? Uh, and then some, yeah, I, I took it a step further. I did nipple reconstruction from my own skin tissue. I had excess skin on the sides that they 
Um, they're called dog ears. Yeah. <laughs> that is basically like a hanging side boob from the extra skin of just going from a larger size to a smaller size. Mm-hmm. And they took that skin, transplanted it onto the middle to create what looks like an areola and nipple. Mm-hmm. And after a healing period, then I had it tattooed for color. So this way it has texture and it's also colored. Wow, so, that's awesome. Yeah. So it. I'm intrigued yeah. here because I'm like, I don't have anything. I'm just Barbie doll smooth. Okay. Not, I was like that for a while. So, so, so when you had that reconstruction done, is it smooth? Is it raised? Is it, I'm being very nosy here because I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's raised a little bit. It, it was more in the beginning and then the longer it healed, the more it kind of absorbed. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I did regain feeling on one side, Ooh. which wow. it was surprising. So one side, yes, I lost some nerves feeling the other side I can feel (laughs) interesting yeah I mean it's it's definitely a Frankenstein kind of surgery at first you see all these stitches around and (laughs) it becomes but it becomes your new normal too and you heal yeah yeah so it, it you know it all blends in you don't even see the scars anymore it's in my case I had a vertical scar up the middle so it covers a lot of it Oh, okay, you had a vertical scar. Yeah, straight up the middle. See, mine are, horiz- mine are horizontal. Okay. Yeah, he did like a W incision and then closed yeah. him in. It's raised, but not overly raised. Yeah. I think he actually probably could add stuff to like a filler to make it a little bit more pronounced, but I don't want to be walking. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard that they're very realistic looking yeah. too. That's awesome. Yeah, especially once I tattooed it with Renee Mashkinat in um, the Florida Jacksonville office. At first, it was very vibrant. You had to give it like a month or two to like it's settle in. Down. Yeah, but it looks it looks good. <laughs> I can't complain. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, it's also important to remind our listeners here that whatever route you take, because I said this at the beginning, if you find out that you have the BRCA mutation, there's a couple different routes. You can choose to do surveillance. You can do choose the prophylactic treatment. Whatever your action plan is that you decide, it's highly individualized. And it's very personal. And there's there's just a lot to consider, which is why, as you said, you need to gather, you, you need to gather your data. You need to talk to your own providers and come up with a plan that fits you and your needs. But then also recognizing just because you have a mutation doesn't mean you're going to get cancer. Science isn't like Mm -hmm. got that crystal ball. It has statistics and recognize what those statistics actually translate to. It would be nice if medicine gave us absolutes. It would be great, but it's not the world we live in. Right. (laughs) But then also recognizing that no one cancer is the same. No one's person's medical history and family history surrounding the mutation is the same either. So kind of keep that all in mind. I chose, well, I'm probably not the best example here. I chose surveillance. And it was when I started, I had just found out, I had the mammogram, and then I had six months later the MRI, Mm -hmm. and that's when it found it. Yeah, see, I did do, technically, I did do the surveillance at first before having the even though, because I knew there was breast cancer history in the family, you know, I, when I walked into the Center for Re- Breast Care office, that was the first thing they did was mammogram. And then six months later, I did an MRI. It was after that MRI that I was like, I'm done. Too much stress. <laughs> Too much. Yeah. So that, yeah. So started with that. So now that you have your risk has dropped significantly, you got out ahead of it. What does your follow up care look like? 
Oh, just once a year I go for a manual exam mm-hmm. at the Center for Breast Care office. That's it. That's it? Yeah. That's awesome. No more um, mammograms because there's no breast tissue to analyze. Right. <laughs> you right. know, and you just do your monthly self-checks. Which is still important for people to remember to do. Yeah, it does. I mean, there is still a little chance left. You never right. know. You still do it. Now, individuals with the BRCA mutations are also at an increased risk for ovarian cancer. Yes. So I know that I had talked to you before about whether or not you were interested in some point in time in your life doing a prophylactic hysterectomy because Mm -hmm. of that increased risk. Is that something that you would consider doing in the future? Yes. Yeah. If anything, that might even scare me a little bit more because then it's taking away the last part of my womanhood. (laughs) But, you know, in the same sense, it's that's the completion end of this. Ovarian cancer doesn't really run in my family, so it's not as much of a concern for me. Although I did find out that on that other side of the family through, um, I met some cousins with through ancestry DNA that ultimately have this mutation to pancreatics running on their side. So we didn't know about that. We've never had that on our branch, but it's still the same mutation. So it's a watch out now. So I just there, there's a handful of risks that come with it besides breast. You've got ovarian, you've got pancreatic, you've got uh, melanoma risk. So you just be vigilant about exactly. it. But yeah, I'll do the hysterectomy post-childbearing. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. I had I had the prophylactic hysterectomy done mm-hmm. um, as well because I'm, I'm done having kids and having got cancer kind of scared the poop out of me. Like I yes. was, I was like, okay, I'm done. what do I need to not have an issue? Let's do any and everything to right. increase my chances. I think the thing that scares me about ovarian cancer being one of the risks is that it's considered the silent killer yes. of women because there aren't any really good screening tools for it. And most of the time when women find out that they have ovarian cancer, it's, it's late it's stages. Late. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do go for annual transvaginal ultrasounds for yes. that reason. You know, in fact, my OB last year had said to me, oh, you don't need it. You just got it last year. And I was like, no, I want to do it every yeah. year. So, yeah, again, absolutely. you have to be your own advocate. Right. Absolutely. I do want to talk about a little bit of hope and some happiness here <laughs> because you have some incredible news to share with us. Yes. Super exciting. <laughs> Tell us this big news. I'm having a baby. Yes. I'm having my first child post-surgery in a post-prophylactic mastectomy. And just found out this past weekend we're having a baby boy. Yay. Congratulations. <laughs> so you are 20 weeks? Yeah, 21. 21 weeks as of yesterday. And, you know, obviously I get that question, will you be breastfeeding? And my answer is no, I will be formula feeding. <laughs> I've had surgery and not one person has judged me for it yet. Yeah. So, you know, is really good these days though. You yeah. know, even if you have, I had my real breasts back when I had my kids, but I wanted to breastfeed. I still had to supplement yeah. with formula because the poor kid was starving to death. Right. You know, so I was formula fed. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're, they're good. The formula is really good this day. And that's when mm-hmm. they like started growing and stop. They stopped their screaming all night long because they were finally not starved to death. Like, good reason. Little, little did I know I didn't have enough. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's part of the reason I chose to do the surgery as young as I did was I wanted to get it done before having children because 
going through the surgery when you've got a couple of young children that you have to be able to pick up, which requires pec muscles. And at first you don't really have too much strength. It takes time for that to come back. It would have been very difficult. So I, I, my personal decision was to do it up ahead of time, but there's plenty of people that do the opposite, that they want to be able to breastfeed, then they have the prophylactic mastectomy. So I understand doing it both ways. That was a personal choice for me. Yeah. Now this topic comes up a lot when people are talking to me in regards to, to my kids, because my, my children and, and, and yours as well, they, they, because we have this mutation there, they therefore would have a 50% chance of inheriting it. And I want to talk about that for a second because mm-hmm. I love my kids. I have two little girls and I would not trade them for the world. I know they are going to move mountains in this world and they are going to sprinkle some sparkle. They're going to leave their fingerprints and they're going to make goods come yeah. in this world some way, somehow. On the same coin, different mm-hmm. flip side, I struggle with the fact that I want to protect them from this gene. And so me personally, I've shifted my perspective from, well, I can't control that, but I can control the way that I raise them. I can Mm -hmm. teach them resiliency. I can teach them what you said in the beginning, arm yourself with knowledge, be proactive. And and knowing that if we continue to push forward, by the time they're grown, the world will be a very different place than it is Here's now. Open. Yeah. So that's my personal spin on it. But how does what you've been through and what you know weigh on your mind as a mother-to-be? It's definitely on my mind. <laughs> you know, we've had that discussion of, should we find out, you know, should we do some testing and see if, you know, he's a carrier? But to your point, you got medical advancements are being made every day. The world might be very different 20 years from now when they're faced with a decision like this of maybe there's a better option than prophylactic mastectomy. Who knows what the world will be by then. So yeah, you know that you have it, but you also can be the role model. Exactly. So. Because that mutation does not define who we are. No, or not what, at all. Or what we can do. I barely but, think about it anymore. <laughs> but knowing but knowing that and knowing the risk affords you the opportunity to make the decisions that are in your best interest. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that in and of itself makes you an amazing role model to your little <laughs> baby there. Yeah. I mean, and that and we had the discussion of doing the pre-implantation genetic testing and going that route through fertility treatments, you know, and having a child in that manner. But frankly, it just was not financially feasible, number one. And I just, I wanted it to be natural. Right. And that's, again, my choice. But there's plenty of people that you can do testing, go that route instead. What would you like this generation of young girls that are growing into women What do you want them to know about the BRCA mutation and or breast cancer? I just want them to know that it exists. (laughs) I think that before I was diagnosed with this or before my family members were, I'd never heard of it. I honestly didn't even really understand what the word cancer meant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something as simple but as complicated as that just to I'm not saying you need to be a medical expert and know the ins and outs of everything, but at least know that certain things exist and knowledge is power. Yes, I love that. So this is my favorite question, and I ask it to everybody that I talk to. So here you go. What would you like women that are faced with a genetic mutation that elevates their risk once they find out that they 
okay, so they've done their they've done their research. They were proactive. They did genetic testing. They found out they have it. Mm-hmm. What's something that you would like those women to walk away knowing? I want them to know they're not alone. It's not an island. There's other people out there that have it. And for them to proactively reach out. I mean, here we are on a podcast. You know of two other people that have this BRCA mutation. Reach out. If you if you feel like you don't understand it, we can walk you through the whole thing. That's right. <laughs> step by step. That's right. Step yeah. by step. One of my friends told me that I was her tour guide through cancer. We can be tour guides <laughs> through BRCA. What do you need to know? What do you- <laughs> walk you through it step by step. We can show you pictures. That's right. <laughs> One step at a time. Here you go. <laughs> Anyway, well, thank you so much for joining us. We are really happy that you were able to talk to us today about what it means to be, I say, what it means to be BRCA, what it means to have the BRCA mutation. Again, I'm always messing that one up. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me, Joyce. And thanks for all of y'all at home listening. Hopefully after today's episode, you understand a little bit more about what it means to have that BRCA2 or BRCA1 mutation and what the options are, and to try to appreciate a different perspective. I look forward to speaking with you guys again next week. Until then, remember that together we weather this storm. You are never alone.